So the passage that was read to us is the passage for this morning, and you've been in a study in the series of the book of John, the Gospel of John. And I'll tell you that this is one of those passages that is just, uh, we're going to scratch the surface this morning. That's about it. And I would really encourage you to go back and, and dig deeper into this passage. It's one of my most favorite passages in Scripture. So I was really happy when I got the email from Richard uh, saying this is the portion for the morning. Uh, a long time ago, uh, when I was meditating on this passage, it, it brought about in me a, a, just a, a time of prayer. Uh, to resonate as a response to this passage. Uh, and I'm a musician. I've been leading worship at, in India since 1997. Everything about me is music or the word because I went from worship leader to pastor. And so it's one or the other. Uh, and so as I was praying, it, it just the, the prayer turned into a song. And I asked Richard if I could share that song as we start uh, the the. Uh, well, start looking into this passage this morning. And I know the song is going to eat into my time just a little bit, just a tad, uh, but do bear with me. Uh, it's not a song you know, because it's a song that I wrote, and, and I'm not famous enough. But it is a song that puts to music, I think, the response that God would uh, have for us, or uh, from us, from this passage. So yeah, you can... Hopefully be blessed by this. More of you and less of me Lord, please let that my prayer be. In this world, let everyone see more of you, Lord, and less of me. More of you less of me Lord please let that my prayer be and in this world let everyone see more of you Lord and less of me Here's my mind, Lord, and take my heart, Lord, and do whatever you choose. Take my life, Lord, and my will, Lord, I give it all to you. More of you and less of me. Lord, please let that my prayer be. In this world, let everyone see 
more of you, less of me. More of you, Lord, and less of me. Father, I pray that this morning there would be more of your voice and not mine, more of your heart, not mine, more of your, your thoughts, your opinion, your word, your call, and not mine. So that the response that, is, that, that arises from this room today would be to a holy God and not to the wisdom of any man. To that end, O oh God, speak to us from your intimate, infinite knowledge of us and your everlasting love toward us. Speak to us, empower us, so that you would find within us a response that brings you glory and that brings you pleasure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Barnabas, for the guitar. Now, the Gospels are a, a really amazing thing to interpret, to study. In fact, the Gospels are the, you know, one of my favorite places to be. Um, Christ is in it, obviously, but Christ is in all Scripture. But the Gospels are, uh, from, a studious, uh, from a student's point of view, it's, it's really uh, a fun place to be when you try to interpret Scripture. Because there's two layers of interpretation when it comes to the Gospel. The first is you got to interpret the intentions and actions and words of the characters that you see within the story. So like uh, next week, you're going to be looking at the Samaritan woman and Jesus. And I don't want to steal uh, from the message. But you look at you know, the Samaritan woman's life and the conversation between Jesus and her. And you're going to look at you know, what was Jesus thinking? What was Jesus meaning when he said that? And what did she think? What did she go through? And so there's that layer that you've got to interpret and understand the intentions and actions and, and the words of the characters that are at play in that story of the gospel. But there's a second layer that also that is bearing on whatever interpretation we come out with when we look at a gospel passage. And that is the intention of the author who put the gospel together. John himself would tell you in John chapter 20 that there's so many things that Jesus did. And if he had to put them all down together, there's not enough pages for him to write. So what, uh, how did John, what was the filter that John used to, uh, to put together the stories that he gave us and the words that he put together for us? I'm sure that you know, you're in a series in the book, so I'm sure at the start there would have uh, been some kind of a message about the context, the background to the book and who John is. One of the three in the inner circle of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. But the Gospel of John uh, was written after Matthew, Mark, and Luke had been written. In fact, some scholars would say John probably read them. Uh, and so he's not interested as much as the others in trying to give you a historical account of who Jesus was or who Jesus is. He's not writing as Matthew wrote to the Jewish audience predominantly. Or as Luke wrote to Theophilus, to a, a, a Gentile believer. John is writing with a broad net, with a big net to everybody. And so he's got to include things that would make sense to the Jews and that would pull at the heart of the Jew. And at the same time, things that would pull at the heart of the Gentile. John is not uh, you know, stuck on trying to give you a chronological uh, account of Christ's life, which is why his book is not chronologically accurate. 
It's not that way. Recently, our family went to India for over Christmas. My wife and, and the three kids that I have, we went to India for Christmas. And if you ask me how was the trip, I'd be like, oh, it was great. What did you do? Well, we stayed at my mom and dad's house. Uh, we went down to a city called Bangalore. Uh, we, we celebrated Christmas with our church in Delhi. I got to speak in Delhi. Uh, we got to eat a heck of a lot of stuff. Now, none of that happened in chronological order. I shared with you something that was here, there, and everywhere. The idea was, I'm trying to tell you that our trip was full of people, ministry, and food. I'm not trying to give you a chronological account on the first day this happened, second day this happened, third day. There's not, that was not the intention. And that's John's kind of a, a, a mindset over here. He's not trying to give you a chronological uh, unfolding of Jesus' life. He's pulled together stories from here, there, and everywhere, put them all together in a way uh, that gets across what he's trying to get across to you. And he tells you in John chapter 20 and verse 31, he says, I write these things that you may believe. That Jesus is who he says he is. And that by believing, you might have eternal life. And so this morning's passage, when we look at it, we, un we have to interpret the thoughts and actions of John the Baptist, his disciples around. But none of this will fall outside of the scope of John the Apostle's desire or intention that you might believe and that you might find eternal life. It will always, in John's gospel, point back to that because that was his intention. He could have put another story. He didn't. He put this story or he put this passage because it's going to help build his argument that you might believe and you might find eternal life. Now the passage for us today, it breaks into very clear uh, two sections. There's one which is narrative which is about John the Baptist and his disciples. Uh, and and just, uh, just FYI, if I just say John, I'm talking about John the Apostle. It's, it's a bit tough when John the Apostle is talking about John the Baptist, right? So, uh, and also, John the Baptist, it wasn't his denomination. It was just what he did. He baptized people, right? So he might have been Methodist, I don't know. But he baptized people. But John is John the Apostle, and if it's John the Baptist, I will say John the Baptist. But the passage breaks very clearly into two parts. There's the narrative of John the Baptist and his disciples. And you'll see that uh, the, the, uh, the quotation marks close at the end of verse 30. The end of the word decrease. Which means still there, John the Baptist is talking. Verse 31 onwards is John. John the Apostle giving his commentary on what has just happened. And so there's clear two parts. One is narrative and one is commentary or theology. And what we're going to do today is we're going to start, we're going to go backwards. We're going to start at verse 31, go down to verse 36, and then we're going to come back to verse 22. So let's get into it. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. Now there's three things that John the, the, the apostle is going to try and tell us. And this is all going to fit his overarching theme in this theology, in, in, this, in this passage. The very first one is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He says, he who comes from above, the he that he's referring to is Christ. Verse 31, verse 32, uh, or the, 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 yeah, verse, uh, the second part of verse 31. He who comes from heaven is above all. The he that he's referring to over here is Christ. It is Christ. It's, he's, he's looking at Jesus and he's saying, 
This person comes from above. How do you know that? Because he, uh, he contrasts him with he who comes, who belongs to the earth. He contrasts him with John the Baptist. Because remember, it's in the context of John the Baptist's disciples saying, you know, everyone's running to Jesus. Aren't you worried? Aren't you concerned? And so John the Apostle is now kind of contrasting them. And he says, he who comes from above, Jesus, is above all. He's greater than he who belongs to the earth, John the Baptist. Now, when, when Christians, and I'm sure good Baptists, when you hear the word earthly, worldly, we immediately think carnal and sinful. But that's not what's going on here. Over here, it's just about the one that was honored, born and brought up on earth, belongs to the earth. He's not from heaven. This is in no way minimizing John the Baptist's ministry. It's not denouncing Nick. It's not calling it sinful. We know that Jesus endorsed John the Baptist's ministry because Jesus went to him to be baptized. If he was doing something sinful, if it was something of Satan, Jesus would have had nothing to do with it. But Jesus goes there and allows John the Baptist to baptize him as well. And Jesus speaks of John the Baptist and says, among those born to women, none is greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus endorses his ministry and his person. So when, when John the Apostle writes and says, he who belongs to the earth speaks in earthly words, he's not denouncing the ministry of John the Baptist. He's just contrasting and saying, no matter how great this guy is, no matter how amazing his ministry is, no matter how powerful his ministry is, Jesus is something else. Jesus is not from here. At the end of the day, John the Baptist is still someone who belongs to the earth. But Jesus is God. Jesus is not another prophet. Jesus is not even the best prophet, as Islam would try to tell us. Jesus is one of our favorite prophets. No, he's not a prophet. He is God. And John the Baptist and, I, and John the Apostle, I love it, in chapter 3 of a book of 21 chapters, he nails it right there. Jesus is God. And I'm going to keep showing it to you throughout my book. But Jesus is God. Get this. Jesus is God. He is from above. He is from heaven. The second thing, Jesus is sovereign. He's supreme. That's what he says. He says it twice. He who is from above is above all. Now it gets lost a bit in, in, in English because he uses the word above twice. But in the Greek, when he says he who is from above, the Greek word used over there for above is anothen, which is geographical. You would look up and say he who is from above, from heaven. He clarifies it in case you didn't get it in the next verse. He is from heaven. But the second word, above all, is ipano. The word above, which, is, which deals with rank. He is ranked above all else. And so he says Jesus, who is geographically from there, from heaven itself, ranks above all others. Jesus from above, comes from above and is supreme over everything. He is sovereign over everything, which means he can do what he likes with impunity. He can do whatever he likes. His will will be done. Whatever he wants, he who is from above, he is sovereign. Now you might say, I mean, yeah, 
if he's God, isn't that one of the benefits? That he would be sovereign? Remember, John is writing not just to a Jewish audience that believes in one God, but to a Greco-Roman audience as well that believed in a pantheon of gods. And there's always this war for the supreme position in heaven. There's all these different gods vying and, and fighting with each other. And John writes to them and says, there is no battle in heaven. Jesus is Lord. It's over. Finished. He is God and he is supreme. Paul would develop this thought in his, in his letter to the church at Colossae. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 and 17. He says, for all things were created through him and for him. And he is above all things and all things hold together in him. That is the extent of his supremacy and sovereignty. That Jesus in him all things hold together. They hold together. I don't know if you've seen the new Ant-Man movie. I'm not sure if you're all Marvel people over here. Not, not sure how many of you are. I've not seen it but I've seen the trailers and he kind of his body kind of just you know, one of the scenes just kind of separates from each itself. It becomes like fibers and, you know, his whole body just becomes like ribbons. That would, that's what would happen to us if Jesus just decided one day, right, I don't want you to exist anymore. The same speed at which when Jesus said, let there be life at the beginning of creation, when, when he spoke and life came out of his mouth and filled the earth, at that same speed, if Jesus just said, let there not be life, there would not be life. It would all fall to the ground. That is the power and the supremacy and the sovereignty of Jesus. Now, I, I've got an overactive imagination. So when I read the Bible, I read it with that. John the Apostle, for him to write this is powerful. Because, you see, he walked with Jesus. One of the inner three who walked close to Jesus, closest to Jesus for about three years of his life. And he would have seen Jesus. And no, I'm not talking about what you think. You might be thinking, yeah, he would have seen Jesus walk on water. He would have seen Jesus call the dead back to life. He would have seen Jesus feed the 5,000. That's amazing. That's all wonderful. But John would have also seen the Jesus who might have tripped on a stone while walking. He'd have seen the Jesus who might have got a fleck of dust in his eye and needed one of the others to blow it out or, you know, help him with it. He'd have seen the Jesus who woke up in the morning and would have had morning breath, needed to brush his teeth. He'd have seen the Jesus who needed a shower. He'd have seen the Jesus who needed to use the toilet. He'd have seen that Jesus. He'd have seen the Jesus who, sitting around a table and talking, his stomach would have made a noise because he's hungry. He was 100% man. If anyone had reason to say, yeah, he's great, he's amazing, but God, that's a bit, I've seen this Jesus, he's man. If anyone had reason, John was one of them. And yet, he says he is God, he is supreme, he is sovereign, he is above, he's come from above, and he is above all. He goes on to say, Verse 34, oh, sorry, verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He holds all things, as Paul would say later, he holds all things together. That is Jesus. But then he goes on to one more thing that he tells you. 
One more thing that he tells you about Jesus in this little commentary of his from verse 31 down to verse 36. He says not only is he God, not only is he sovereign and supreme, but in very uh, like the letter of Hebrews kind of a language, John would say Jesus is better. Better than what? Better than anything that you could try to replace him with. Jesus is better. Why is he better? Why is he better? Well, he says in verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. This one who comes from above, Jesus, the one from heaven, he bears witness firsthand, eyewitness to what he has seen and heard in heaven. So when Jesus talks about the kingdom, it's very different from when John the Baptist talks about the kingdom. Because John the Baptist, at best, and it's beautiful, is hearsay. The father told him, he heard it and he said it. But Jesus is giving you first-hand account of what the kingdom looks like. It's an eyewitness testimony. He bears witness to what he has seen, what he has heard. He has come from there and he tells you what it's about. I don't know if you've ever struggled with you know, theological concepts and uh, of the Trinity of God. There's so many that write books on it. So many scholars and theologians will, will, will be like, I'll explain it to you. How does this thing work? It's, it's three gods but one God, three people. What is going on? And there's books and authors and speakers. But I tell you, even the one who comes up with the best argument to explain it will stand before God when he gets there, see the Trinity at work, and he will fall to his knees and say, Wow! Wow! The... All the languages of the world cannot capture the, the, the majesty of how a God could be one and yet three. Completely one and yet triune. It will blow our mind. But for Jesus, he's eyewitness. Well, he's a participant in the Trinity of God. He's one member. And he speaks as an eyewitness of the kingdom. He goes on to tell us other things that is good. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent, this is Jesus, he's still talking about Jesus, the one who's come from above, he utters the word of God, the words of God. What does Jesus bring? Why is he better? Because Jesus brings God's words on, to bear on anything that you're going through. Are you trying to figure out why a loving God allows suffering in the world? When you read the news, when you see the pictures coming out of Turkey and Syria, why would a loving God allow suffering to that extent? You'll get a lot of opinions. You'll get a lot of answers. You'll get a lot of questions from others. But Jesus is better because Jesus tells you God's words on the matter. And here's the thing. God is infinitely wise and infinitely loving. And so his word, whatever he has to say on any matter, will come with infinite wisdom and infinite love. Automatically, God's word is better than anybody else's word on any subject that you're going through. And Jesus is better because Jesus utters God's words. He gives the Spirit without measure. John the Baptist bore testimony to this. He said, I baptize with water, but the one who comes after me will baptize with the Spirit. Jesus is better because it is through Him and because of Him 
that you and I receive the Spirit of God. The third person in the Trinity to come and reside with us. And what does the Spirit do within us? The Spirit does within us what God wants Him to do, what the Father wants Him to do. He cleans out the gunk and the junk. And He helps us and strengthens us to obey. And why that is so powerful is because as you'll come to it in John chapter 15, when you, you know, as you make your way to John chapter 15, where Jesus will say, if you obey me, if you love me, you'll obey me. And those that obey me, my Father and I will come and make our dwelling with Him. So now the Spirit of God has come to dwell with you, to create within you a life that is obedient. And as you obey, the Father and the Son as well come to reside with you. You become the dwelling place of the triune God of heaven. And Jesus facilitates it by giving you the Spirit. He gives the Spirit without measure. He gives the Spirit, capital S, very important to notice it. That means he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Jesus is better, verse 35, uh, uh, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus is better because he brings us and gives us forgiveness and eternal life. Jesus is better because believing in Him, you have eternal life. You sang earlier, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the three in one. I believe, I believe, I believe. Belief is such a, uh, such a quick word in the church today. But look very carefully, I love this, the language used over here. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And then he goes to the opposite, the contrast. But he doesn't say, whoever does not believe in the Son, the wrath of God hangs over him. No, he says, whoever disobeys the Son, which means the opposite of belief is disobedience. The opposite then of disobedience would be the word that is synonymous with belief. It is obedience. Belief over here, according to John, is not just agreement with the fact that Jesus is better, Jesus is God, Jesus is supreme. It's not about singing that you believe. Belief, according to the Bible, is the ability to build your life then on these truths. I spoke at a Methodist camp and I played a game with them, uh, which is dangerous to do at a camp, a Methodist camp. But they love the Apostles' Creed. Every Sunday. I grew up in a Methodist church. Every Sunday we'd read it. You sing it, we read it. And so I played a game with the creed, which is again, you know, dodgy to do in a Methodist church. I said, I'm going to read out the creed line by line. And it's all young people. And I said, at any point where you feel you disagree or you're confused and you're not fully sure that you agree with that statement, sit down. No judgment, sit down. And we can pray for you or we can talk about it. But they didn't realize it was a game. And they didn't realize it was a setup. And so I kept reading line by line. And, and some of them stood. Some sat down being honest. And as it progressed, there were fewer and fewer standing. By the end of it, there were a few that were still standing. And they, they looked really excited about the fact that they were the true believers. They had, and they had survived the creed. And right at that moment, I shared with them, I said, congrats, you are now on equal footing with the devil. 
Because as you read through the Apostles' Creed, think about the song you sang, I believe in God the Father. As you read through the Creed, tell me one line that the devil doesn't believe is true. Which line of the Creed will the devil say, no, no, that, that's not true. He knows there's a Father. You don't understand how the Trinity works. He's seen it. He knows it. He knows the cross happened. You doubt sometimes, did Jesus really rise from the, how does it work? How did he rise? You know, did, did he push the stone away? Who, what happened? The devil knows how it happened. He was there. Okay, maybe not Jesus. The, the Jonah in the whale, maybe that's the thing that tripped you up. In a fish, three days, really? Maybe it's just allegorical. The devil knows he was there. He saw it happen. Hates it. Some of these theologians will argue about, you know, evil can't exist in the presence of God. So how do you explain Job? How does the devil, you know, meander into heaven, into the presence of God? How did that happen? The devil, you're trying to figure it out. The devil says, I did it. I know I was there. It's true. It happened. There's not one line in the creed that the devil doesn't believe. But every line of the creed, the devil has not built his life on. It did not affect him. He hates it. The opposite of belief is disobedience, which means the true meaning of belief is obedience, is the ability to build your life on these truths. And that's where we go back to verse 22. Because what John the Apostle teaches in theology from verse 31 onwards, John the Baptist shows us what it looks like when belief is not just agreement, but it is building your life upon these teachings. So we go back to the narrative, and don't worry, this is not a whole second sermon starting. The end is near. But we find here a man who built his life on the truths that God, Jesus is God. Jesus is supreme and sovereign, and Jesus is better. But just before we look at that narrative, to set myself up and to set your hearts thinking along this path, when you come to faith in Christ, for anyone who comes to faith in Christ, you are adopted into a family. There are no solo Christians in the world. There's never has been and they're still not there and there never ever will be a solo Christian. You are part of a family. You are part of a body. And Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16, he would say this about the body, about each member in the body. He says, when each member plays its part, the body grows in health or grows stronger. You know that's true about your own body. As soon as one member of your body doesn't work, you call the GP, whether you get through or not in this current system. <laughs> I don't know about that. Can't guarantee that. But you'll call him or her. Something stopped working. And you'll be called ill. You'll be, called a, you'll be told you have a health issue if something in your body stops to work, doesn't play its part. The church of Christ, my brother, my sister, is unhealthy today. No, not because, you know, marriage is being attacked, not because gender and sexuality is being attacked. All of that is, is horrible and we will fight it. But the church of Christ is unhealthy today because there are many, many, many people who fill the pews of church as spectators. 
They have forgotten that they are members of a body with a part and a role to play so that the body is healthy. If you sit in a church and say, this is an unhealthy church, this is a church, uh, are you playing your part? Have you found your talent? Have you found your gift? Have you surrendered it to God and said, Lord, help me to play my part? Every member is a minister. Maybe your gift is not preaching and teaching, but you have a role to play. And here's where John's narrative of John the Baptist helps us. Because John the, the, the Baptist teaches you through this encounter where his disciples get nervous. They get concerned because all the people are leaving and following Jesus. They come and report to him. Are we going to do something? Should we organize an evangelistic event? Because they all went down the street. We need to organize something cooler, something more loud, something more flashy. They'll all come back. What should we do? Should we get a new sound system? What, what do we need to do? More parking space? What, what should we do, John? And John the Baptist tells you two things from his response. The first is this, that a biblical perspective of yourself and God is imperative to Christian ministry. John the Baptist says that straight away when his disciples come to him, his response is not, mm, let me think about it, let me pray about it. No, he, said, he says straight away, verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You see all the followers that followed me? You see all the baptisms we've done? It wasn't me. It was heaven working through me. My role is to be faithful to what God calls me to do. But heaven does the work. Heaven brings repentance. Heaven gives to me what I do. Every disciple that followed me, it's only because heaven gave it to me. I cannot receive one thing unless heaven decrees it. Otherwise, I'm not going to have it. Nothing that I own in terms of ministry is mine. He goes on. He goes on to say, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ. Now, John was, Israel had been, you know, without a prophet, without any prophetic ministry for about 400 plus years since Malachi, the last prophet. They were waiting for a Messiah. And suddenly, you know, John the Baptist comes along. 400 years. By now, there's no living eyewitness of Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, any of them. By now, they're all just past heroes of Israel's history. Israel has moved on. Life and times have changed. They've come under different governments since then. And suddenly, here comes a man who resembles those stories of their powerful prophets of the past who looks and walks like Elijah, who speaks with the authority of Isaiah and calls people to repentance, who weeps like Jeremiah. Suddenly there's a prophet and there's prophetic ministry again. And people start coming to him and his ministry is successful and he's calling the nation back to repentance, back to their God. And as it grows bigger and this movement grows bigger and bigger and bigger, suddenly John sees Jesus and he immediately he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As Jesus was coming to him, nothing's happened yet. The dove hasn't landed. He's not heard the voice from heaven yet. He sees Jesus coming and he says, That's him, the Messiah. But in that moment, Jesus comes and says, baptize me. All of this could have fed into John's ego for him to, for a brief moment, think, ooh, I'm, I, I'm quite 
put together. This is quite a good deal I've got. But he never lost perspective of who he was in God's big plan. He tells his disciples, you might have lost perspective, but you bear witness. Remember with me, I told you, whatever God does, however great this whole thing is, I am not the Christ. I'm merely someone who came before saying, get ready, he's coming. Look, he came. And that's what the next part is. He says, I'm the bridegroom's friend. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. Now in Jewish ceremony, the bridegroom's friend, he's much more than a best man. The bridegroom's friend was the guy who was the event manager. He would plan the entire day. He would plan the entire wedding. He would do everything for the groom. Makes sense. John did all of that for Christ. And so he says, when the groom comes and the voice is heard by the friend, the friend's heart rejoices because this is what I lived for. This is what I was doing. This is what I've been busy for a whole year with all the stress of a wedding planning that has to happen. That's what I've been doing. And now I heard the voice of the groom. He's come. The, there's no moment along this. Think with me. The, you would get mad at the bridegroom's friend if throughout the wedding planning he was trying to steal the bride. If at any moment in the time, the thought entered his head, hey, I'm working so hard, that guy's not doing a thing, I hope she notices how much hard work I'm doing. Maybe she'll pick me on the day. That's the, the, the stupidity that John could have gone down. But his perspective keeps him from there. He realizes and he knows my role is the friend. The bride belongs to the groom. No matter how hard I work, the bride goes to the groom. And my heart as the friend rejoices in that. He says, my joy is complete. If you're going to serve God, which you must, if you are someone who puts faith in Him, then a biblical perspective of you, of who you are, and who God is, it is imperative to ministry. And then that famous line, he must increase and I must decrease. Biblical humility is imperative to ministry. It is imperative to ministry. John knows who he is. And not only does he know who he is and who Jesus is, the response within him is, he must be greater. Everything I do must only exalt Christ more and more so that I fade away. Paul again would develop this thought. He would build on it. As he writes to the Galatian church and he says in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 22, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. So it's not even that I must decrease. He says, I must decrease to the point of I'm gone. I'm dead. I've said this before at other churches, Christians, we love to, I love the song, but we love to sing, Jesus, keep me near the cross. And John would say, no, get on the cross. Don't sit near the cross. Get on it. Be crucified with Christ so that now he can live in you. He would tell the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, for me to live is Christ. It's not about me. Nothing to do with me. He would encourage the church at Colossae, believers. He would say, you, have, you, have, you are dead in Christ. 
You are dead and now your life is hidden in Christ. It will come again in glory when he comes. But for now, you and all your dreams, all your desires, all your ambitions, they're dead and they're hidden in Christ. And just at that moment, when the he must increase, I must decrease, as you start to unpack it and see how Paul would unpack it as well, as it starts to hurt, and as you start to say, but, but, but my dreams are quite noble. They're not evil. My ambitions are, are, you know, in fact, they're bordering even being godly ambitions. What's wrong with, but, you know, really me, I, sh- I must die? I must decrease to that extent? You know, Christian life so- suddenly seems to be this one giant disappearing act where I disappear. And I'm not so keen on that. As you start to think that thought, when you come to the end of verse 30 with the word decrease, John the Apostle would say, Christ, your supreme God, is better. Choose him. Don't choose you. What big ambition, what big dream are you too scared to give up on? Or are you too scared to come fully to Jesus because he might tell you to give it up? Christ is better. Pick him. Run to him. Cling to him. Obey him. Build your life on him. Live for him. My prayer for us today, me and you, is that continually the anthem of our life would be that. In all things, in every way, through every decision, every emotion, he must increase. If not in the whole world, if not in all the people in my church, Lord, at least in me, increase and let me decrease so that when people see me, they see you. I'm not going to save anybody. I'm not going to be able to love people But you can. So you must increase. And I must decrease. Would you bow in quietness and let the Spirit of God finish what he started to say to you. And then I'll pray. Father in heaven, for all the times when we picked something else or someone else over Christ. Just in the, in the moment, something else seemed sweeter, more sensible, more desirable. Forgive us, O oh Lord. For the times we might have defined belief as assent or agreement and not allegiance, and not building ourselves on you. Forgive us, O God. For all the times where we said with our, with our mouth, Jesus is God, but then we lived our life in a way that he wasn't. Forgive us, O God. Teach us what it is like and what it means to build our life on the truth 
that Jesus is Lord, that He is supreme and sovereign, and that He, in all matters, in all things, at all times, is always better. And as you convict us of that, and as you pour the concrete of that truth into our heart, help us, O Lord. Help us and transform our mind so that we will have a biblical perspective, always. We would think biblically on ourselves and on who you are. And that we would, you would find within us a response that says, Lord, you, more of you, you must increase. Help me to decrease. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.